The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Jim Frederick is passionate about adding new garden drama and engagement through outdoor lighting every season. In our discussion, we discover his outdoor lighting techniques that add new visual dimension and security to your garden space. We also explore how to avoid the most common and frustrating installation mistakes. Jim shares his 25 years of experience in designing, building, and distributing in the outdoor living arena. He holds a bachelor's degree from Penn State University in landscape contracting. As the national sales manager for Truescape's landscape lighting, he finds great joy helping the hardscape contractor succeed in his business and installations. Truescapes provides key products such as accent and path lights for your outdoor space. Developing unique groundbreaking products for your outdoor experience is always at the top of their mind. You can find them at your local Belgard distributor. This is episode 37, Lighting Your Garden for Drama with Jim Frederick on the Garden Question Podcast. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Jim, how does night lighting add value to our outdoor spaces? I feel night lighting is a key ingredient in outdoor living design. Uh, as, as outdoor living design has evolved over the last 15 to 20 years, we recognize the value in the evening, extending our outdoor living time. Late into the evening, it starts to get dark earlier in the fall, and uh, we make a big investment in our outdoor living spaces, and it's key to enjoy that space all year round. It's just like adding a new dimension, isn't it? Exactly. I think that's a good way of looking at it. You can even add value in the wintertime with an investment in your outdoor space in your backyard. You can stare out your window in the winter and enjoy the investment that you've made throughout the summer. And then also, I would think the safety, any kind of steps and things like that, you're, you're making them safer. And then also security side of it, too. Yeah, and that's a key part when we discuss the value of outdoor landscape lighting. It really does add a number of factors to your project. One, that sort of vacation, that extension of the home and safety and security is key to that as well. They do have statistics that show that uh, outdoor lighting does cut down and add security to the outside of your house by eliminating dark spaces, dark corners, and a well-lit house feels better coming home at night, driving up your driveway and seeing that well-lit home, that safer place that draws you in and it's makes you feel better. What are the characteristics of a well-designed outdoor space? As we talk through this, I think lighting is one aspect of outdoor living design. My background is design, schooling, and my history in the industry. I bring a design aspect to it, which is part of why I get excited about lighting. 
it's just one piece of the puzzle. And I think there is good design and poor design in landscape lighting, as there is with any other aspect of an outdoor living space. And I think that's part of the growth of being in the industry, installing jobs, learning as you go, identifying key characteristics, key features in the landscape of what looks good lit up, what doesn't look good lit up, how you light it up. There's different factors that we can talk about in terms of color temperature, beam spread, different light fixtures to use for different aspects of the garden. So I think there is a skill to landscape lighting design. A lot of that comes with experience and asking other people in the industry what they do. I've gotten involved in a number of Facebook groups and I've learned so much just by interacting with other people in our industry that post questions and answers in terms of design and installation. Let's start with what is low voltage landscape lighting? What I assume being in the industry for 20 years is a pretty basic question, but I still meet a number of customers, contractors that don't really understand what low voltage lighting is. It is pretty simple. What we're doing is we're taking the 120 volt output on your home and we're converting it to 12 volts. And we do that for a number of reasons. One, it simplifies the installation and allows a non-licensed electrician or even a homeowner to install landscape lighting on their property. Now, there are some areas of our country that require a permit or a licensure, but typically in the U.S., skilled contractor can install low voltage lighting. We're really just taking 120 volts out of your house, out of an outlet, and we're converting it with a box to 12 volts. And that allows us to run low voltage wire through the landscape. It's not requiring any sleeve or conduit, and it's a safe way to add outdoor lighting to your property. There used to be a little bit of a divide as to line voltage versus low voltage. It's not powerful enough. It doesn't provide enough impact. We have crossed that divide and a low voltage system can provide just as much impact and beauty to a home as a line voltage system. What advantages are there to the low voltage, say, like over a a solar lighting system? Two sides of the book here, right? We have line voltage on one side. We have solar on the other side. We talk a little bit about the advantages over line voltage. We have a lot more flexibility, safety. Uh, We're not working with high voltage lines through the ground. An advantage over solar is the technology in solar has not reached a level of reliability yet. We see solar lighting sometimes in a a home center type scenario or a, a big box store. They tend to last one to two years. You don't get a lot of longevity. You're limited in terms of your installation. You need sunlight in order to recharge it versus maybe a a dark corner of your home or an area that doesn't receive a lot of sunlight if you live in the woods. So there's limitations to solar. I'm not saying in the future we won't see improvements in that type of a system, but today if I was installing a system, there's a lot greater advantages to a low voltage system. In terms of efficiency, because I think a lot of people will talk about solar being more efficient, a low voltage system typically in a residential application is pulling a maximum of about 150 watts through the transformer. So compare that to two light bulbs that you may have had outside at your garage five, 10 years ago. It's a very efficient system. So not really a need to move to solar in terms of that aspect. LED lights have become the standard. It used to be halogen. Can you speak how that transitions happened and maybe how you can switch a halogen system over to LED? Yeah, gladly. When I got into landscape lighting about almost 20 years ago, halogen was the choice. LED was in its infancy 10 to 15 years ago. Landscape lighting systems were based on halogen bulbs. We were using 20 watt, 35 watt, 50 watt bulbs in our systems. There was an extra level of complication during the installation process because there's limitations in terms of the wiring and so forth that is involved in the system. So you had to use a meter. You were using much larger transformers, uh, 900 watt, 1200 watt transformers to power these systems. LED came onto the scene and really has changed the industry. 
Prior to LED, there was a hesitancy for a contractor to install low-voltage lighting because of the complication, because of the callbacks, lamps burning out after six months, and so forth. LED has added a level of reliability, a level of efficiency. There was a hesitancy when it first came out that the bulbs were going to look like the blue Christmas light bulbs that we were so used to seeing when Christmas lighting, uh, holiday lighting, made that transition from halogen to LED. That's really been refined and perfected. You can put your hand on a really high quality LED bulb now that will provide a warm white defined light color and temperature at a very efficient level. 35 watts is now 4 watts or 5 watt draw on your transformer. The wiring is much more basic now based on the technology of the bulbs. So LED has really transformed the industry and allowed a larger portion of our industry to get involved and feel confident in the system. Where do you begin when designing your nightscape? Noting that I come from a design background I really like to get involved early on a project where we are identifying key features in the home, key features in the landscape in terms of specimen plants, maybe a water feature or a, a structure of some sort. And if we get in early on the project, you can dictate wire runs, you can dictate locations of fixtures, how you may attach those fixtures to a structure. And then also just meeting with the client as a homeowner or as a designer every client will have a, a desire or an idea in their mind of what they want to achieve. Just to kind of talk about a, a quick story I learned over the years, I did a pretty extensive project with a friend of mine a number of years ago. A customer, he and his wife wanted to light up their house. They were in the industry. They loved plants. He was a plant guy at heart. We drew up the design. We went out to the job site, spent the day putting all the lights, and we lit up all the beautiful plants. He was a specimen plant guy. All the beautiful plants across the front of the house. Lights came on that night. His wife came home. She didn't like it at all. She wanted to light up the front of the house. He wanted to light up the plants. In terms of a design, the client sometimes has an image or a vision of what they want, and she loved her house. She wanted to show off the brick. She wanted to show off that beautiful home. He was a plant guy. It depends on the client's desires, your vision of what you'd like to see as to how you start that design process. I've always kind of worked toward a happy middle, some structural light up and then some specimen plant light up. I agree. Front yard versus backyard sometimes dictates that as well. Typically, the back of a home is not as attractive architecturally, but it's where your living space is, your majority of your specimen plant material. You can find that balance as well on, along the front of, of a typical residential home where you have maybe one or two specimen plants, an anchor on the corner, maybe a flowering tree of some sort to provide seasonal interest. And you can highlight those features as well. I come back to that client expectation, I think, is what you need to first determine as you walk down that design path. In general, that applies to outdoor living design overall is meeting those clients' desires and needs in lighting as well as all those other aspects. What are some of the different techniques for lighting your garden? There are some unique opportunities. I think this is where we kind of come short. A lot of lighting installers will look to the basics. They'll graze the front of a house, maybe uplight a few key plant features, specimen plants. There are more detailed and more advanced techniques in terms of grazing plant material against a, like a shadow against the front of the wall or in front of a feature in terms of different ways of uplighting. I think one exciting technique that I'm finding more and more viable in the industry now is using different color temperatures in the landscape mm -hmm. and identifying the architectural features of the home, whether there's maybe a stone or a brick or a siding, and how you determine the light temperature that will best accentuate that exterior surface. Same with plant material. A blue spruce or a plant that airs to that sort of white 
brighter blue color tone looks better with a brighter white bulb versus a, a warm white that we would traditionally just go all 2700 Kelvin, all warm white, which is preferred by most clients. You can pick and choose features in the landscape or architectural features on the home and make adjustments to the color temperature of the fixture to make it pop, to make it special in terms of the designs. Placement of fixtures is a learned process over time as to how to best accentuate features and then starting to experiment with different light temperatures. Different beam spreads of your bulbs can sometimes create different effect on those features as well. It's a learning experience as you install and you uh, work with different plant material, different structural surfaces. Some of the creative aspects can be really grown in terms of design. Talk about beam spread. How do you use a narrow beam spread versus a wide beam spread? It's a great question. We get a lot as a manufacturer and as we're helping contractors grow their design prowess. Typically, beam spread is not as critical in path lighting and in hardscape lighting. It's typically those accent lights that we refer to that offer different spreads and different intensities. That bulb would go in an accent light. Typically, it's an what's called an MR16, which is an industry standard bulb size that has been used since the dawn of lighting time. They came in halogen sizes and halogen version. They come in LED version. What I see is typically three choices, a narrow beam, a medium, 40 degree, and then a wide 60. And I think it depends on the features that you're attempting to uplight. I'll use a narrow beam typically if there's a front porch with featured posts or beams supporting that front porch or along the front of the house. If I'm trying to uplight between two windows, I'll use a narrow beam bulb. Typically a narrow beam bulb is very focused and very sharp in terms of the output vertically. Commonly a 40, 35 to 40 degree bulb is your medium spread. It's your workhorse bulb that you'll use on the front of a home, maybe to uplight the trunk of a tree or an architectural feature, such as a water feature or something that you're trying to spotlight. That's another term. I also use widespread 60 degree think one thing to be aware of is when you use a 60 degree bulb to be aware that the fixture that you're installing it needs to allow that wide breadth of beam. Sometimes I see guys throw a 60 degree bulb into a narrow fixture, which really limits that wash or that wide beam. You need to provide a fixture that can handle that wide beam. And then I'll use that on stone veneer on a home. There's a ledge wall, maybe a 36 or a 48 inch high wall across the front of the house with stone veneer or a natural stone wall in the landscape. If you use and aim correctly, a wide spread uh, fixture, you can catch more of that feature, less focused, more washed, and more even spread, I guess is the word I would use. I get a lot of guys that'll call me and say, which one should I use? And sometimes it's a little bit of a process of experimentation and learning as you install what your preference is and what works well in those applications. Now that's the wall wash technique, right? Yeah. Typically we market a fixture, we call it the wall wash, it uses a 60 degree lamp, has a wider lens, and we actually put a frosted lens on ours as well, which I think helps in the diffusion of the light. But yeah, wall wash is typically what you're referencing when you go to that widespread. If you shine it straight on, you're not getting the shadows, say, in a brick or the rock or whatever. But if you go at angles on that, then you start getting up shadows and that can add a little drama to it. Based on the substrate or the feature that you're attempting to light, moving a fixture closer or farther from a feature can affect the light output and how it eliminates that area. Pulling a fixture back away from the wall will catch a wider, softer spread, sometimes less shadowing. If you have a really a unique stone veneer, stonework on a house that has indents and crevices, you can do some really neat featuring as well with getting close up and facing up and really catching the texture of that veneer. In my backyard, I have some tall uh, woodland trees some shagbark hickory that have some really neat bark. And I have some uh, wall washers right up against the trunk to catch the texture and the feature of that bark. They're a very tall canopy. I'm not really concerned with uplighting the canopy as much as I am the architectural texture of the bark. 
That sounds real cool to do that. Tell us what moonlighting is and how you do it. It's always the debate as to whether somebody wants to get involved in moonlighting, because I think it's probably the most difficult to do well. Back in our halogen days, the olden days, right? We talked a lot about moonlighting, but there was a fear because you would crawl up into a tree, you're downlighting through the branch structure. Three months later, you would have a bulb go out and you're back up there with your ladder. And it was a lot of customers that I dealt with became very hesitant to even get involved because of the maintenance With LED, we now have added a level of reliability and I've seen a resurgence in moonlighting. I think the challenge with moonlighting and mounting something above shining down, the ideal situation or scenario is a tree that has architecturally interesting branch structure that allows you to create that shadow and light that through that structure onto the ground, create some interest. The challenges with moonlighting are one, safely installing it, mounting it correctly, finding a safe way to mount it into a a living organism, a tree, uh, by using stainless steel screws, running your wires very carefully and to not affect the the structure and hurt the tree in the future. Glare is an issue, right? So now you're mounting a fixture up in the air, shining down. You need to be very careful as to how you aim that fixture and to not provide glare that you're hurting someone's eyes when they walk down your driveway or walk up your walkways. It's a really neat, architecturally interesting way to light something up downlighting through a tree, downlighting from an architectural feature. I just think there's an extra level of skill and thought involved in that process. You need to be a tree climber to do that. I had a situation once where I had a driveway and kept running over the path lights along the driveway. We went on the trees along the driveway and just aimed the lights back to the driveway and they didn't run over their lights anymore. A wooded lane looks great with downlighting. It's just being strategic about placement. I think you need to get 20 to 30 feet up in the air so that you're really putting a nice widespread down. You're not narrow focusing on the driveway, right? You're creating a wash. You're creating a nice an environment as you drive down the driveway. Prevent glare. You don't want to aim the lights in a way that it would affect the driver. It takes an added level, I think, of design and thought to do it well. And it's just one of those aspects of design where you know if it's right and you know if it's not right. Well, when you get it right, it looks great. How do you do path lighting well? That's interesting that you bring that up. But I think path lighting is probably the most common, oldest trick in the book, whether it's the, the box store solar lights that we see along the walkway or a path lighting done very well. One, I think you brought up a very key point. Path lights along driveways don't last very long and path lights in grass in lawn don't last very long. I see that very often where somebody has a nice winding walkway through the grass and they went and put path lights in the grass along the walkway and they look good for about six months until the lawn guy bumps it with his lawnmower. The weed eater hits the bottom. I think placement's important in terms of safety and longevity and being smart about where we place our path lights. I also think it can be overdone very easily. I think space 8 to 10, 12 feet on center along a walkway looks really good. We're not looking to bring in planes. We're just looking to provide security and safety and highlight that nice loose stone walkway, nice paver walkway. We want to highlight quality of the work, create a path, guide our guests to the front door safely. I think it can be overdone very easily. Some designers will design with the circle of light touching. I don't think that's critical. You can design well with about 10 to 12 foot facing on path lights, creates a nice walk, a nice pathway. I'm seeing a little bit of a transition in design into possibly using fixtures that are in ground. So as we're laying pavers, as we're laying stone walkways, I'm seeing more and more fixtures that are integrated into the walkway versus shining down on the walkway. And sometimes that's the answer when we're in a situation where we just don't have a good place to put a path light, but we want to have 
have that safety and security and that design aspect. How does that work when it's in the paver? Just saying, hey, this is the edge of the paver. Don't walk any further this way or are you actually cascading on the paver? I've seen different angles there, different different attacks on that. One, we manufacture a paver light, which sets in between your pavers. It's more of a glow. It's not a cast. It's really more of a a sign, like you're noting, here's the end of my walkway. Uh, There's a manufacturer that makes an inset, uh, I'll call it a dot light, that you core drill out a hole. It's a marker point, I would say, or a boundary point. I've also seen some pretty creative fixtures that are coming out now, which do cast light. They can be installed along the edge of a walkway and cast bread of light across the walkway. From a design aspect, it's setting your goal or what your idea is for design. As you noted earlier, even downlighting can be pathlighting if it's done well and it's meeting the expectation of the client. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. What about water feature lighting? Can you speak to that? I'm a strong believer in lighting the water feature from outside of the water. Over the years, I think the number one warranty issue, the number one callback is underwater lighting. It just seems like water always finds a way to destroy a fixture over time. Typically, if I come across a project or I'm involved in a project where there's a water feature, a pond, especially where somebody wants to light up the water feature, the waterfall, graze the water, I really highly recommend placing fixtures on the outside of the pond on the outside of the feature, bot lighting, accent lighting, the key aspects of that feature versus submersible fixtures. It comes up very often and it just seems to always be an issue over time that no matter how well, how good you seal those things up, they come back to haunt you. And that's just my personal experience. Again, I know other contractors may have had more luck with it, but it just seems to always come back and get you. I agree. I haven't put one in that lasted very long because the water would always infiltrate it. How about lighting things like arbors and like more hard structure, pergolas? Yeah, more of the structures in the landscape. I've seen some really creative applications with different fixtures, up lighting the posts, down lighting on posts. I'm a big fan of sconce lighting. I'll call it the soda can light. Typically, will attach to the surface of a vertical post and provide either a down lighting or up and down lighting, depending on the style of the fixture. I've seen applications of even like a hardscape or a strip light attached to a cross beam to provide some down lighting. There's a lot of creative ways. I think it's really important to light up structures. I think they're key elements in the landscape. I've even seen outdoor ceiling fans and outdoor fixtures attached. I've seen some really neat line voltage fixtures integrated into outdoor outdoor living spaces as well. I think using a sconce lighting, down lighting, we have a fixture that's very similar. It is a tree light, basically, that can be aimed up or down. One thing I think from an installation standpoint that's very important is when you take accent lights and you face them down, you need to be careful that this water always finds a way. Haunted us for years. I had a job one time where somebody took accent lights surface mounted facing down and water found a way through the knuckle and it gets trapped behind the glass and fills up slowly and eventually you're done. Key here is to use a fixture that's designed for the application. If you are using down lighting, if it's in a tree, if it's surface mounted to a pergola or a structure, make sure you use a fixture that has a screen over the bulb versus glass and it has the ability for moisture to pass through versus getting trapped. Come back more to the practical side of that question, I guess, than the design side in terms of just being smart about what fixtures you use. Placement's very important. You don't want to have any glare. You don't want to 
provide a fixture that's going to provide an unpleasant feeling, right? We want to be smart about placement and smart about how we downlight. How about lighting things like boulders and uh, other natural features of the landscape? You got any hints on that? find that wall wash type of fixture really comes in handy. I live in the hardscape world. You have a segmented retaining wall or a segmented wall. You can use an undercap light, shines down, looks great. But what about a natural stone wall, a natural boulder wall, something like that that doesn't have a cap, it doesn't have an overhang. So that's where I think that wash type fixture really comes in handy. You can strategically place it in the landscape to really highlight that feature, highlight that natural wall or, or natural boulder. I've seen some really creative designs where these guys place boulders in, in such creative ways and it's just the natural beauty, right? And you, you want to highlight and accent that. So again, I think that wall wash type light is really the best choice for that type of an application. Talk about, if you would, viewing your landscape from indoors rather than being outside in the landscape, you're indoors and you've got a living picture through your window. Could you talk about that? Yeah, and I think that's what's kind of exciting about landscape lighting. And we briefly mentioned earlier, it's really a year-round value. I live in a seasonal area here in the Northeast. It's not outdoor weather right now. <laughs> you know, I can't think to sit in my patio tonight because it's going to be 28 degrees. But I can look out my window and I can enjoy and appreciate the beauty of the woods behind my house because I have strategically placed only a few fixtures. I didn't go overboard. The value I see in it, one is, again, we come back to the safety and security. I live on the border of the woods. I have some accent lighting on the woodland edge, uplighting the trees. One, it's a little more of a safe and secure feeling when I look out my back window. And also I can enjoy year round the investment I made in my landscape. I'm not out there sitting, enjoying it right now, but I can look out my window and really see that artistic image that I've created in the landscape. So I think it's finding the value in that. And the value right now for me is appreciating my backyard. I've just recently lit up a couple of trees, a pecan tree and a pistache. I stand at my window and stare at them. So structural and so interesting. And it's just simple little uplighting on these two trees. I, I went and bought some more and going to do a couple of more trees. I don't want to overdo it. It's just something very, very tranquil about it and interesting to me. I have a Japanese maple corner of my house. I appreciate it more now than I do during the season because the structural impact of the branch structure really is interesting to me. And it's got that nice smooth bark and it reflects the light very well and it just looks really neat right now. I think you can use lighting to appreciate your landscape year round. What is the most common installation issues? Ah, this is the fun part, right? (laughs) (laughs) I just walked through a project last week and I would say the number one issue that we find as manufacturers and as we help guys in the field, it's it's a connection issue. We tend to rush, we tend to downplay the value and the importance of the different components of our system. It's easy, it's LED, right? We constantly see issues with poor connections. In our industry, we could probably have an hour-long podcast just talking about the different connecting options in our industry. We're outdoors in the weather, we're in freeze, thaw, we're in heat. Installing lights in Florida, it gets to be 150 degrees. Here in Pennsylvania, where I live, it's freeze, thaw sometimes during one 24-hour cycle. Our hard gapes are taking a beating. Our trees are trying to survive. Our lighting systems are also very critical. And I think one, it's poor installation technique sometimes. And I think two, it's lack of maintenance. We're a very maintenance-free society. We install and we move on. We don't really talk to our clients a lot about maintaining a system, proper wiring, using the correct wire, which is important, low voltage wire that's made for outdoor use, direct burial, and using good connectors. 
The most common connector in our industry is a waterproof gel-filled wire nut, and they work well if they're used correctly. If you don't install it correctly, if, if you don't strip the wire correctly, I've seen jobs where guys, we use a multi-strand copper wire. They use their rusty Felcos. You know, they don't have a good tool. They remove strands of copper and that degrades the wire. We need a waterproof connector because a copper oxidizes. So we want to prevent moisture from getting in there. If we don't tighten that connector down, it's not going to stay. That's really most warranty, most calls, most callbacks we get are based on poor connections. I've seen customers try and overuse wire nuts. I can get seven or eight wires in this wire nut. Doesn't ever hold, causes issues in the future. Number one issue on job sites, hands down, poor connections. What would be a secondary issue? Moisture. I think water is always our enemy. Moisture is our enemy. Condensation. Keeping a tab on your fixtures. I really believe in maintenance. I think anyone who's serious about landscape lighting should be talking to their clients about annual maintenance, checking the transformer, cleaning the spider webs out of the transformer, making sure your connections are tight. When you flip open the door on the transformer, your wires go into uh, wire lugs, making sure that they're clean and tight, checking your fixtures for water intrusion, condensation intrusion. That's really our enemy is water and moisture weather. So I think just staying ahead of the curve on that is really key. Be smart about our installation to use the proper components to do it right. Just like with anything we do in our industry, it's with hardscapes. You follow the standards and you follow the professionals will last. If you don't, it will fail. We're providing the tools as an industry to do this correctly. You take shortcuts, you're going to have problems in the future. Is there anybody setting those standards? It hasn't been as clear and defined as I think it should be. Association of Outdoor Lighting Professionals, AOLP, is a trade organization that is publishing installation standards, providing training. There are certifications that they can provide. They have an annual conference. They have membership forum that you can get involved to learn the trade, learn the craft from a technical and from a design perspective. There are standards out there. Uh, UL 1838 is the standard for low voltage lighting. You can Google that and you can print that out. The AOLP on their website, does have a document that walks through the process and the standards for our industry. I would maybe venture, I guess, 5% of installers are reading that document and following it. I think it's our job as manufacturers and distributors to really get out there and help guys understand and recognize that there is a value in education in installing lights. It's not just, hey, this is easy, throw a couple lights in. On a small job, you can get away with that. If a landscaper puts five or six lights in or you know, maybe eight to 10 lights, you usually get away with it. But as you grow in the craft and you grow in your design and sales in the process, I think you need to be smarter and more educated. Outdoor lighting has made huge advances over the last five and 10 years. What does the future look like in outdoor lighting? I think the evolution, and you brought up solar, and I don't have anything up my sleeve or anything on the drawing boards, but I have a feeling we're going to continue to move to a more efficient system in terms of power transfer. LED is very efficient, and so I think we're at a good spot right now, but I think there's always room for advancement. And I guess if I was to predict the future, that's where I would see more advancement on the solar side, but I think we still have a ways to go. Tell us about your company, Truescapes Lighting. This company is a fairly young company. I've been in the industry for about 20 years, and I've been involved in lighting for most of that. Truescapes was born out of an idea to create a niche. There's a lot of really good landscape lighting manufacturers out there that make a lot of really creative products. The two owners and I found when we met a few years ago was they weren't really servicing the hardscaper, the common installer. There's a lot of really niche products there's a standard product line that really is key to our industry. So we sat down and said, you know what, if we can just create a simple, very manageable product line, we think it would be very well received. And we would create a distribution network. 
I came out of the dealer world after design build. I was a dealer. A lot of hesitancy in terms of distribution is the complication of that landscape lighting catalog that has so many options that really caters to a, a small percentage of our industry. It was really born out of an idea of simplicity that we can provide a complete product line that helps contractors grow their business, learn landscape lighting, use quality products, and do it well. That was really how we were born and been five years, and we've been very successful with that model, and we plan to maintain that model moving forward. Our innovation and our energy is really in the hardscape industry. We're partners with the national distributor with Belgard, which is a familiar name across the country. We're continuing to use our innovation and our design time on hardscape-driven products, paver lights, column lighting, undercap lighting, and how to expand on that and help those guys grow their business. You came out of the design build area now in the lighting industry. What I'd like for you to do, because you probably see a lot of cool landscapes, and I know once you get it in your blood, you can't get it out. At least I can't. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? I have seen an evolution to this holistic design. We used to be much more segmented. We would have guys that were hardscapers. We would have guys that were landscapers. In parts of the country, I still see that segmentation. But here I'm at Bucks County, Pennsylvania, in the mid-Atlantic, there's a much more holistic approach to design. All the components come together in harmony. I think that's really key. I think the client has demanded that. It's our job to provide that. More what we're seeing and, and what I enjoy is seeing these complete designs, these outdoor living spaces. We're, we're seeing kitchens, we're seeing uh, fireplaces, we're seeing all these pieces come together as one cohesive design. And I think that's what excites me. I keep seeing a progression where we're, we're getting better at that from a design perspective. Clients are seeing the value in hiring a professional to bring all those pieces together well. And our industry in the last few years, has, there, there's a value in that. And I think the client and the homeowner is understanding that. And that to me is very exciting. What is your earliest garden memory? My grandfather had a nice little garden out back behind his house, and he grew the best tomatoes and green beans. When I was a young kid, that's what I remember. And then I was actually drawn back into the industry in high school and early in college by a teacher who was running our horticulture program. And I got placed in his homeroom in high school. He drew me back in. It really reset my path to follow a goal in the horticulture industry. Do you have a, a funny plant story or garden story you can tell us? I was kind of digging back into my design days. I wouldn't say it's funny, but one thing from a design perspective that I always really enjoyed was we always tried to plug in one really special plant. Maybe it was on the edge of its zone. Maybe it was a little more uncommon. Uh, a signature of my design and, and the person I had worked with closely that helped me grow my design skills. We would always try and plug that one special plant in and have the client be aware that that was something unique. One plant that we really liked to use that was kind of sketchy was the Franklinia tree. A little bit of a risk sometimes, but the client would really appreciate that special piece in their garden. In your professional career, who has been your biggest influencer? Wow, that's a tough one. I can walk through my career and I can point out the people that have really affected me over the years. When I got into lighting, there's a guy named Jeff Hesser. He works for another manufacturer, Cast Lighting, and he has really been a staple in our industry. And he taught me lighting. You know, rewind the clock many years ago, back in our, you know, quote unquote, we'll say the halogen days. He was a manufacturer's sales rep that came out to my distribution yard where I work. We were carrying their product. He brought contractors in and we set up lights. We walked through the entire process from the installation, design, construction. I will always be thankful for his input. And to this day, we're still friends. We cross paths at trade shows. That's important to me. And I hope that I can help people in the same way he helped me. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, it's constantly a learning process in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> 
We've all goofed up, right? Yeah. I don't know if I can point out one mistake. I just think we're constantly learning and we need to be open to being educated by others. And I think the biggest mistake we can make is not listening and not accepting the advice of others in our industry. There's a lot of people that feel like I just know the best way. You can't change my mind. I've been doing it this way for 20 years. I think if we're open-minded, I feel like a lot of what I've learned in the industry is just from asking questions rather than just tell people what they want to hear or tell them what I think they need to hear. I will often engage and ask questions. So I think that's really important as a learning curve to be open-minded to those around you in the industry that have been here for years and hear what they have to say. Kind of led me into this next question where you're talking about we're always constantly learning. What have you learned recently that you didn't know, say, two months ago? I think the most current aspect of our industry that really is intriguing me is this usage of color temperature. And we kind of touched on it over the last couple of years. It's a bit of technology that LED has allowed when we used halogen lamp, they were warm white. They were all the same. Even with LED transitioning for years, we were very set on that warm white. And just in the last six months, I've become more open-minded to opportunity to design with color. I think that's even going to trend into more color-changing type products, even utilizing the color wheel and so forth. That Kelvin aspect of landscape lighting is really exciting to me because I think you can really fine-tune your landscape lighting package and your design. That's the most exciting thing to me right now with our industry is grasping onto this opportunity to start being more creative with design with color. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have... In my garden, I have some beautiful hydrangeas. <laughs> That's my favorite plant. I have three hydrangeas right behind my deck that are my favorite. Walk outside and enjoy a piece of my garden. That's the first place I go. What variety are they? They're just the ever-blooming. Been there for about five years, and they just grow, and they're happy, and they look great all season long. They're a key aspect of the garden, and I love them. Tell us how people may connect with you. I'm on Facebook as Jim Frederick. I try to engage on Facebook with like-minded professionals. I am a salesman. It's what I do for a living. I do it because I love it. When I enter into that social media platform, I try to be there as a resource, not as much as a salesman. I'm not shy uh, and secretive about what I do. It is pretty exciting that I get to do what I love and make a living with it. If you want to engage me on social media under my Facebook or Instagram under Jim Frederick, I appreciate the engagement and the banter sometimes in terms of design and, and construction. I can be connected via phone. Phone, cell 215-480-8034 or through my email address, jim at truescapes.com, tru-scapes.com. We can also be found on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram under the Truescapes banner. This has been episode 37, Lighting Your Garden for Drama with Jim Frederick. Thank you, Jim. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.